Hi folks, welcome to Truth to Power. You just heard Billy Joel's Leningrad. Billy Joel's song, Leningrad, is a vivid reminder that Russians are much like us and that we as Americans have no dispute with the citizens of Russia. The discord between Russia and the U.S. has to do with the Russian political leadership, not the citizens of Russia. Today's Truth to Power is all about the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. Truth to Power airs on WFMP 106.5 FM radio. The opinions expressed here are those of our guests and not the station. I'm Jim Johnson. Doug Lowry from Soars of Justice will moderate our discussion. Thank you for tuning in to WFMT Radio. I'm Doug Lowry. I'm your host of this program today. We have David Campbell, Jim Johnson, and K.A. Owens with us. And our discussion today is going to be about the conflict in Ukraine. And join us for some interesting comments and discussions, probably things that you haven't heard somewhere else. I'm going to start with David Campbell, if you'll just introduce yourself a bit and tell us what you think. Okay, well, thank you all for having me, gentlemen. It's an honor to be here. Again, yeah, my name is Dave Campbell. I am the host of Louis. Louisville Reads. You can hear me once a month on the fourth Wednesday, fourth Thursday, and fourth Friday of every month. Go to the Ford Radio website to see more about that program. For this program, I was invited here by Jim Johnson to talk about specifically how we go about reporting on within the media about the war in Ukraine and thoughts and comments for that. A little background on myself. I was born in Jefferson Town in 1981. However, I moved to Lexington, the Lexington area when I was about seven years old. I got a Bachelor's of Arts in Economics and Public Policy from Eastern Kentucky University, and then I served seven years in the military. I am a combat veteran. I served with the combat unit. I was in the Iraqi war from 2007 to 2008, which will inform some of the discuss- the ways that I look about this conflict as we talk through uh, the issues today. I got a master's of business administration from EKU when I returned, when I left service in 2010. And recently I completed a master's of public administration in urban governance from the University of Louisville. I graduated last May. So I have no formal background in international relations. I have no journalism degree, but I, I do read a lot. I do think deeply about these things. Like I said, I might have a perspective about what, what goes on in war zones that some people might not, and I uh, look forward to sharing them on the program today. Thank you. How about you, K.A.? I'm K.A. Owens. I'm the host of On the Edge with K.A. Owens, which is broadcast on 106.5 FM, WFMP. Known in Louisville more as a community activist, I've been on the, been the chair or co-chair of several local community organizations. I do community organizing and activism around issues of uh, economic justice, criminal justice. Born and raised in Louisville, went to a combination of six years of Catholic school and the six years of public school and then I had uh, got my degree in communication at the University of Louisville after spending my first year at a historically uh, black university. So my military experience was in the Kentucky Air National Guard for a four by four, four years on the active guard reserve and uh, four years in the inactive reserve, but I uh, was never called up to be in a war. So I've been studying history my entire life, international relations and history, uh, a lot of memoirs, a lot of uh, autobiographies, biography biographies of historical figures, generals, and, and sort of personal diaries and memoirs of people who served as bug privates and seamen recruits on up to uh, generals and admirals. And, uh, and of course, now I do a lot of radio. I do a couple radio shows, including WFMP, where I get an opportunity to interview all kinds of people about all kinds of things. So that's me. Thanks, Kay. How about you, Jim Johnson? Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a former JCPS, Jefferson County Public School Social Studies teacher. I am now the producer of Solutions to Violence that airs on WFMP Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of each week. We've been on the air for four years now. I'm a student of history also and not have never been in the military, but I've done a lot of reading on uh, U.S. at war. And so that's what I bring to the, the discussion today. Thanks, Jim. Well, I'm Doug Lowry. I'm a Reverend Dot. I came to Louisville to go to the Southern Baptist Seminary. One of the groups that I work with is a sponsor of WFMP, Sowers of Just Network. We have a weekly third Thursday luncheon that we partner with Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Louisville chapter, each week. Sowers of Justice is committed to racial justice, nonviolence, and peace. We help found a local Asala chapter here in Louisville, the Carter G. Woodson people. Most of America knows it as Black History Month founders, but they do a lot more. We've been involved with the Louisville Bail Project and do a lot of work with other organizations in Louisville, primarily food justice, 
Uh, we do a lot of work with Louisville Community Grocery. We've started some local food pantries. So the racial justice piece in Louisville is also economic justice. So we do a lot of work on that as well. So I'm going to ask a question about NATO. What do we think NATO could or should have done to prevent this conflict? And I'll start with you, David. The question was, is what could NATO or should NATO have done to prevent this conflict? Right. Okay, again, like I said, I, I have no background in international relations, but I do have some understanding generally of, of you know how NATO operates. I was under the impression that, you know, NATO, you know, after the the fall of the Soviet Union in the late eighties and early nineties, you know, NATO had basically had to find a new purpose. You know, you had the post Russia was apparently opening up as a democracy at that point. NATO, which had counted the Warsaw Pact all during the Cold War, basically had to begin to transform itself. And that transformation turned into an expansion, actually. Uh, instead of seeking out new purposes, it did what most bureaucratic organizations do, and it just continued to grow. However, it continued to grow into Eastern Europe. It began accepting new members on the border of the former Soviet Union. Uh, Turkey became a member of NATO, so now Asia Minor is... is uh, apparently aligning itself with NATO, which is a, another way of aligning yourself with the West, which is another way of aligning yourself with the United States as a superpower. The signs that Russia felt that NATO was, they felt that they were being antagonized on their borders by NATO has been there for about 25 years. You know, all of those warnings have been there. They were even there before the war on terror started. And it might be added that people need to remember the war in Afghanistan the war in Iraq that I was a part of was called Multinational Force Iraq. However, the war in Afghanistan, which was the basically the premier front and the longest front of the war on terror after 9/11, was uh, a NATO operation. Eventually, it was under it was under the NATO flag, the International Security Force, Assistance Force, ISAF. That seems like okay. Well, you know that's over in Afghanistan. Afghanistan borders the former Soviet Union. The the Soviets were in Afghanistan. They retreated. Says we're in Afghanistan in the 80s, in the 90s, which then they eventually morphed into Al Qaeda when they felt that NATO hadn't uh, lived up to their promise, and they they turned against us. NATO, I think, went from being a counterbalance to uh, sort of uh, incendiary in its politics. Put it mildly, but I'll leave, I'll leave room for the other guys to respond to that as well. And I'm, I'll, I'll also add, I think a good proof of this is the fact that within the last couple of weeks, China came out and told the United States, we don't want to see a Pacific version of NATO because we don't want to get drawn into the, some of the antagonisms that we're seeing in Europe right now. You know, sort of the political Chernobyl, the international diplomatic Chernobyl that, that Ukraine is now. In a nutshell, but please, I want to hear what the other guys have to say. Hey, hey, what do you think? First of all, for everybody who uh, doesn't follow the jargon, of course, NATO means North Atlantic Treaty Organization, sort of a post-war organization. When I say post-war, I mean post-World War II. And so I want to respond directly to that by first making a departure to sort of the Monroe Doctrine here in the Americas. Because a lot of people are saying, and I hear it, that because of how the United States has treated Mexico, South, and Central America, has claimed it as a sphere of influence that we have to control and dominate, that somehow gives Russia and or Putin the right to control areas adjacent to it. Well, what the United States has done as a result of the Monroe Doctrine is wrong. And in one of my shows, the show I did with Stephen Gardner on this topic, I said, 10 wrongs don't make a right. And the point of that is what the United States has done to South and Central America has retarded its development. South and Central America has all the resources, human and otherwise, to be equal to Western Europe or any other place in the world. We have retarded, the United States has retarded the development of those countries, and that is why they're in chaos, and that is why there is a migration on foot from south to north. So just because the United States mistreated South and Central America with the, with the so-called Monroe Doctrine does not empower or justify Putin and or Russia. Uh, some people think they're the same thing. I don't think they're necessarily Putin and Russia is not the same thing. It doesn't empower Putin and or Russia to control Eastern Europe. So that's wrong. That is the whole purpose of the Cold War by the architects of it was to not compete militarily, but to compete economically, socially, and see who won. Well, the West, with all its flaws, sort of won that competition. And so what Putin has done, unfortunately, that is he thinks 
his system is failing in that competition. And so the countries of Eastern Europe are voting with their feet. That's why they're joining NATO. That's why they want to be a part of the EU. The, 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 but they're voting with their feet. They think the Western system is more attractive than whatever system uh, Putin represents. And Putin really doesn't like this, so he wants to you know, rattle his saber and use his military. Total error, total mistake. So in other words, if countries of Europe want to join NATO, they have a right to do so absolute right to do so because they think if they want to join the eu they have the absolute right to do so and so the idea that nato caused this by accepting new members or the united states caused it i told i reject that concept completely okay what about you jim johnson what do you think yeah thanks i see what kay owens is saying here but it looks to me like NATO is an extension of American uh, neoliberalism. It is a, a military organization. It is an uh, organization that was originally designed to protect European countries and the United States against military aggression uh, committed by the Soviet Union. But the Soviet Union no longer exists. So it begs the question, what's the purpose of NATO and what reason do they have to continue to exist? Well, a lot of that reason has to do with economic expansion by the United States after the Soviet Union fell apart. NATO continued and brought in 11 other countries that had formerly been under the spear of the Soviet Union. So that expansion was not just a military expansion, but a great economic opportunity for the United States to expand its, its capitalistic a sphere of influence in Europe. So many historians, Peter Kinzig, for example, Chris Hedges, Anatole Levin, Ralph Nader, others as well, see Putin's request, grievances, as reasonable and justifiable because NATO is now it's, well, it's mil still a military organization and U.S. military installations have now surrounded Russia, not just military installations, but military installations with nuclear weapons within 100 miles of Moscow. So those historians see Putin's request not to allow yet another European country to join NATO, a country that's right on its border, join this military alliance that is now a threat to Russia with its military installations and its nuclear weapons. And in fact, instead of uh, bringing back or disarming some of those nuclear weapons, Poland military installation, U.S. military installation in Poland, now has activated a nuclear weapon, yet another nuclear weapon. So some 108 nuclear weapons now aimed at Russia exist in NATO countries. And that's the reason why Putin and some of the Russian political leadership as well very much concerned about the military threat um, implemented by NATO, but are also concerned about the economics uh, outreach and expansion. Uh, and it looks to me like what the United States is doing here is very similar to what they did under the Monroe Doctrine, influencing Central American and South American countries. And we know how that influence, as Kay quite rightly pointed out, diminished the, the power and, and the righteous endeavor by Central American countries. It looks to me like the NATO expansion is exactly what the United States is doing in Europe now, and that's the reason why Russia and the Russian political leadership is very much concerned about that military and economic expansion. Thanks, Jim. So it seems like there's been a pretty dramatic assault on Ukraine, and not just strategically, but a direct attempt to scorch and burn not just assets, but people. And it seems like we've seen quite a bit of of over-the-top brutality, and I just wonder what each of us think about that. I can say for myself, I understand strategic objectives and I understand the threat, but there's a way to diminish threats that don't require you to, to make innocent people suffer. And I think that our response as the United States and in the West makes a lot of people suffer because we've frozen Russia's assets, we've made it difficult to get fuel and energy sources to Europe and other parts of the world. And, and that's its own different type of suffering. But that direct brutality to me seems over the top and unacceptable. And I wonder what you all think. Jim, you want to talk about that? Oh, sure. Yeah, I don't. And, and nobody here, nobody I know of believes that 
the Putin attack, the Russian attack, the Russian military attack against Ukraine is justifiable. It's, uh, I see it as crimes against humanity. I see it as an invasion of Ukraine, unjustifiable invasion, absolutely. But there, and there is a big but here. So I wonder if Biden and NATO had agreed to some of the quite reasonable demands what we believe is reasonable demands, historians believe, made by Putin and the Russian political leadership. If those demands had been dealt with respectively and there had been some compromise here, would this war now be happening? As a member of the Lowell Fellowship of Reconciliation Steering Committee, I know that FOR, what they want to see now is an end to this war. We want the war to end. And so I don't see how that's going to happen without some compromise, some diplomacy, some negotiation here, and some give and take on both sides. And I don't see the mainline news media addressing any diplomacy or any of those grievances that have been expressed by Russia over decades. And those grievances have not just come up recently. They've been uh, expressed by Putin and Russia for decades now without being addressed So uh, by the other side. What, what do you think, David? Well, obviously, I mean, I'm going to agree with Jim in, in the sense that I don't know anybody that thinks that any of this is, is acceptable. I mean, and, and we can we're going to we have we're having an excellent debate on the causes and, and the reasons and the backstories, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But now that it has morphed itself into what we see on the television every night, it, it's absolutely appalling and it's war crime. I, I don't think a lot of people don't understand. Eastern Europe is one of the most violent Historically, the worst of modern wars occur in Eastern Europe. In World War II and World War I combined, 50 million people died in what is now considered the East, what was formerly the Eastern Bloc is now called Eastern Europe. 30 million of those 50 million were civilians, that they, and of which the Holocaust and the pogroms under Stalin were a small percentage. You know, we hear we hear about th- those atrocities, but the, the Eastern Front between Germany and Russia and both of those world wars sent 50 million people to their graves in less in, in half the time of the war on terror, which is absolutely amazing. E- even what I experienced in war at its absolute worst in Iraq, which was kind of sporadic, kind of Wild West violence, you know, I- IEDs and things, more people are dying a week in the Ukraine conflict and died than all American soldiers that were killed in an entire 12 years in the Iraqi war. And most of these the, the soldiers and civilians. So it's, it's absolutely horrible. I mean, clearly, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to say this and, and I, I want to agree with what KA said in the sense like nobody forced Ukraine to um, want to join NATO. Nobody, those are, those are voluntary decisions. Those are within the rights that nations have to determine for self-determination. You know, you've got issues of the Monroe Doctrine and for the, the listeners, the, the Monroe Doctrine, it was this early 19th century uh, American diplomatic doctrine about a sphere of influence within a hemisphere and a hegemony. Uh, you know, you can almost trace the modern ideas of superpowers and America's status as a superpower goes to the Monroe Doctrine about it's not just controlling one section of a continent, it's con- it's controlling entire hemispheres, entire civilizations. Nobody uh, uh, disagrees with that those things exist. Nobody disagrees with the voluntary nature of, of joining alliances if you choose to as a nation. Uh, however, I think that people need to remember something. There's not one person in the American government, that includes Joe Biden, and I don't take political stands. Uh, that includes the Biden administration. We've got to remember that President Biden was uh, instrumental in uh, the war in, Ser- in Serbia. In, in Bosnia and Herzegovina under the Clinton administration to try and sort out all of these issues, this tender box of issues in Eastern Europe. So even within ruling administrations and, and political parties that are in power, which interestingly enough were traditionally anti-war, every single one of them knew their diplomatic staffs, their advisors, knew the, the levels of violence that could be unleashed in Eastern Europe if if the situation was not managed correctly. Am I blaming them for the violence over there? No, I'm not. I'm not. But but to say, but we have to be aware that they, do I think that they in, in the end gave every single diplomatic, every, every bit of diplomacy that they possibly could. I'm speaking specifically for the United States at this point, Secretary Blinken, uh, President Biden, Vice President Harris. I do think that they did. And I think Putin still made the decision that he made, but it, it's complicated. But if, I, I, I think that from, as, as a war veteran, I can tell you right now that starting in late February, for the citizens that are on the ground in Ukraine, for us, it's been 60 days. 
for them, it probably feels like one big giant day, and that's traumatic. And and I think at this point, uh, the only person that doesn't want this to end is Vladimir Putin himself and maybe a couple of his cronies. But I'll, I'll yield to K.A. for the rest of it. I want to agree with Jim and Campbell and David Campbell about uh, what a tremendous and what I feel unnecessary tragedy of human life, horrible and totally unnecessary. And I do think that I really do feel that every casualty, Russian and Ukrainian, is is lies at the feet of decisions made by Putin. I really do. But I want to go back to countries competing economically and instead of military, uh, militarily. Whenever President Obama was asked about Vladimir Putin in Russia, he would say that Putin's economy was the size of Italy. That's what President Obama would say. So for my first show on the topic, I kind of looked it up. Top 25 economies. Number one, United States. Number two, China. Number three, Japan. Number four, Germany. Number five, United Kingdom. Number six, India. Number seven, France. Number eight, Italy. Number nine, Canada. Number 10, South Korea. Number 11, Russia. Number 12, Brazil. So Russia's economy is actually smaller than South Korea. So how Vladimir Putin thinks that he is somehow competitive with an economy that size is amazing. And so some people think that Vladimir Putin's behavior is sort of 19th century behavior. You know, no, no, this is 20th and 21st century failed state behavior, more similar to North Korea or Pakistan. North Korea, Pakistan are failed states, countries that don't work. And so, but they both have nuclear weapons, so they're always rattling their nuclear weapons. And so you look at South Korea at number 10, economies bigger than Russia, and they started out with nothing after the Korean War. Korea was literally flat on its back, South Korea. And if you look at the South Korean people, they're getting taller, they're weighing more, you know, you see South, some South Koreans walking around like 5'10", 170, you know. Uh, but you look at the people of North Korea. <laughs> I mean, very frail and delicate because they're not eating. The only, part, the only person in, in, in North Korea is eating is the leader. He's a very chunky, healthy fella. He's eating all the food. So, uh, I mean, I'm using humor there. But Pakistan, failed state with nuclear weapons. North Korea failed state and North Korea is always rattling his missiles, you know, launching missiles and everybody's supposed to be impressed and, and afraid. Really? Really? Uh, no. Failed state behavior. No, not great power behavior. Failed state behavior. So what the people of Russia want is a bigger apartment and a new car. No, they're not interested in invading Ukraine. No. No, no. So uh, what Russia needs to do is to make itself more attractive by succeeding. That's what it needs to do, at least in the eyes of other folks. The Warsaw Pact didn't fail militarily. The people of Eastern Europe, East Germany, and other places, that is, the West is not perfect. The West has got many faults. The post-war world order, flawed. We know how tra we know the tragedy of its flaws. I mean, you know, should Gaddafi have died? No. Should you know all the, the tremendous casualties happened in the Middle East? Should they have occurred? No, no. The post that is the post-war world order flawed. We got to acknowledge that. But the people of Eastern Europe they see things in the West with all its flaws as being more attractive than the Eastern system. And now, and so, I mean, it's strange you look at things and if Putin doesn't watch out, if he's not careful, he's gonna end up living on a subsidy from China. And so all of his great power aspirations are gonna lead to the Russian people being on the dole from China. So from, I mean, I think one, I think there are plenty of people who read Clausewitz but don't understand it. <laughs> I think there are plenty of people who read uh, The Art of War from China 
but they don't understand it. So I think that the Russian leadership may have read the great books, but they don't understand it and don't know how to apply it. And so big red F to Putin and the Russian government, massive fail. So starting wars are easy. Uh, ending wars are usually not because people not only need to save face, but there has to be a way forward. Um, we saw Russia seize Crimea with really little or no consequences. And now that they're assaulting Ukraine, there are obvious consequences, military consequences, economic consequences, cultural consequences. Lots of billionaires have less ability to use their resources than they did six or eight months ago. What is the way forward for billionaires? What's the way forward for countries like the United States and uh, Western Europe to have more democratic governments? And what's the way forward for powers like China and India to stand to gain substantially on an outcome? I'll ask David Campbell first. Well, it's interesting. I'm glad that you brought Asia into this, you know, China and India. I mean, because we got to remember, I mean, if you look at the map of Russia, it's humongous. And we think about Moscow looking west all the time when we think about Russia, but it includes, I mean, one of the largest land masses for a country in the world, borders China, borders, you know, the Kazakhstans, the steeps. I mean, it's a humongous border. It's just all these complicated geopolitics that go along with that. I think that was interesting what K said about Russia's relationship with China. And whether I answer this in this this question set or we save it for follow-up comments, I'll, I'll, I'll see how this conversation develops. But China is directly interested in Russia, what Russia is doing right now. The reality is China supports what, Russia's, what, what Russia is doing right now. We have to remember right before the most recent Winter Olympics, you know, there was where Jiang Xiaoping and, and Putin stood together in, in front of the Olympic ceremony. And, and a lot of analysts, credible analysts internationally say, you know, they were signaling a Russia-China um, friendship to the world moving forward in the, in the post-COVID era. You know, one thing we all know about international relations is, is I mean, every, every nation or superpower is pursuing their own self-interest. Uh, you know, this was articulated in the United States when uh, somebody asked George Washington. I recently read a really fantastic biography by Ron Chernow about uh, George Washington and about how the now newly formed United States, formerly the 13 colonies, would relate to the Indian nations after the revolution. Washington said, well, you know, we have to pursue our self-interest as a nation and the Iroquois and the Algonquins have to pursue their self-interest as, as a nation. And we'll just see how this all turns out. Uh, well, everybody knows exactly how that turned out for the, the Iroquois and Algonquin nations. So in that sense, even cooperation between Russia and, and China and India, uh, Prime Minister Modi has definitely signaled that he's pro-Russian. You know, they're going to pursue their self-interest. And right now, maybe China and Russia, China and India see uh, their self-interest as, as um, backing Russia's aggression in Ukraine. However, they might be in their self-interest that, uh, you know, maybe this will create a weakened position for Russia, which is also in their self-interest. So you just never know. In the international level, you, you in, the, in the game of nation states, uh, one never knows. But it's interesting that you said you talked about the billionaires, the oligarchs. You know, these individuals exist in Russia. They exist in the United States. They exist in India. And even in a communist country like China, you've got billionaires in China, which is, a, is, a, is hard to understand when people think about a socialist communist state, they're going to pursue their self-interest as individuals. Uh, and many of these people have more money than entire nations do. You know, I, I don't, I'm no expert on the nuances of sanctions and exactly how much that hurts and the difference between freezing assets or seizing assets. But there's a whole separate ball game that I don't have the expertise to, to talk on, but um, uh, you know, they, that, that's the, the, the economic elite. I think they're ultimately the ones that are, that are calling a lot of these shots, but I'll yield to the other guys. Tim, what do you think? Is there a way forward? Yeah, let me first respond to uh, a comment that K.A. made concerning the position of the Russian people here. I think the Russian people here are much concerned about their own safety and the fact that there are nuclear weapons pointed at Moscow and Russia. They are concerned about that as evidenced by the fact that since Putin invaded and the Russian military invaded Ukraine. The Putin's uh, poll numbers have, have skyrocketed. 
So they evidently there is a, a significant number of, of Russians that approve of this invasion. We don't, but there are Russians that do because they're concerned about their own safety. And also uh, in terms of U.S. efforts at helping establish and change dictatorships or countries that are at least uh, partially communist into democracies, the United States had a quite failed record at that. It didn't work in Afghanistan. It didn't work in Iraq. Sending in the military, U.S. military, to change those countries into a democracy was a certainly failed experiment. It hasn't worked in either country. And so I think the United States as world police is not a good strategy. Countries have to decide for themselves, kind of like the, the Wilson Doctrine, what kind of government they're going to be. I think the only way we can influence that is by helping to establish schools and hospitals. And uh, we had that opportunity after the Russians, actually the Soviets, left Afghanistan and invaded Afghanistan on, on behalf of the socialist government that existed in Afghanistan. And that socialist government was under attack by extreme right wing uh, entities in Afghanistan. So that uh, invasion, uh, as we know, on part of the Soviet Union was a failure. The Soviets left partially because of the uh, Pashtuns were given weapons uh, by the United States through Israel. So when the Russians left, we we had an opportunity to influence the, the uh, Pashtuns to trans, transform into the Taliban in Afghanistan by uh, helping them build schools hospitals and, and other democratic institutions, but we failed to do that. We didn't take that opportunity to do that. And so uh, Afghanistan uh, is now once again run by the Taliban and theocracy. So I, I don't see us being successful as being the world police. I don't see the U.S. being successful as a using its military to transition governments into some form of, of democracy. I think governments, countries have to make that decision for themselves. Thanks, Jim. What about you, K.A.? Is there a way forward? Yeah. yeah unfortunately, in modern warfare, the so-called word attrition and exhaustion is what leads to, at times, a negotiation. Unfortunately, and not common sense or care for humanity. Going back to what uh, David Campbell said er earlier, and just sort of, he said that uh, uh, it could be that both uh, China and India would be quite happy to see Russia exhaust itself or impoverish itself or ruin itself in this effort. In the same way, you know, Winston Churchill was quite happy to see. Russians and Germans kill each other at a rapid rate on the Eastern Front in World War II. Nothing thrilled Winston Churchill more. He was just so happy he didn't know what to do. And so it may be just attrition. That is, uh, what burn rate of men and material can, and I hate to put it that way, sort of a technocratic military thing, just what burn rate is a military-industrial complex in Russia willing to put up with? How much economic devastation are the Russian people? willing to put up with and is you know the west going to continue to support ukraine at a level where they can force the russians to burn men equipment and material and will the ukrainians do more offensive operations because they have done the ukrainians have done offensive operations in russia they did a helicopter assault blew up a field depot or something across the border. Are they going to do offensive operations? And so what is the strategy of the Ukrainian military? Are, you know, those, I hate to use those sort of military technocratic, sometimes that's what it comes down to inside of, and in, in, when you're talking about modern warfare, I hate to say it as far as diplomatic, I haven't heard of any successful diplomatic overtures, but there are probably things that I don't know about. I would like to see it. Interesting enough, here in the political left, you know, uh, Senator Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, he talks about uh, Ukrainians winning. Uh, he wants the United States to support the Ukrainians winning the war. And so whatever that means. Now, I'm not sh sure what Joe Biden is saying exactly 
and uh, what that term means. I'm not sure what that means. Uh, even if uh, the Russians left uh, soon, if you look at the devastation in Ukraine, it'd be interesting to say, to hear the United States say, and the West saying that we, you know, that it's committed to rebuilding Ukraine after the Russians have left, those types of things. But like I said, I'm sure there are things, uh, diplomatic overtures, I just haven't heard any. I see nothing on the horizon. So I'm sorry, I wish I, I, wish I did. So in the mix of things, we know that Ukraine was, was a nuclear power once upon a time, but no longer is a nuclear power. And I just wonder briefly what you all think about the power of nuclear deterrence to prevent war or invite war. Jim, you want to answer that? Yeah, I, I don't see uh, uh, nuclear uh, weapons as, as a deterrent. We can look at the Cold War. The Cold War was not cold. There were, there were many public wars that are, were carried out, supported by the Soviet Union, as well as the United States. Wars in Central America, war in Guatemala, for example, orchestrated by the U.S. CIA, took the lives of 200,000 Guatemalan citizens. Wars throughout Central America, supported often by U.S. and U.S. money, took the lives of thousands of people. So uh, there were there were many conflicts that were that looked awfully hot if you looked at the statistics and the number of people that died in those military conflicts that were occurring during the so-called Cold War. So uh, nuclear weapons as a deterrent to, in terms of preventing war, there's no history of that. Wars continue, wars continued on into the 21st century and Afghanistan and Iraq, other European Middle East countries at war and civil wars as well, Rwanda, all those wars have continued. So I don't see uh, nuclear weapons as a deterrent to war at all. We just hope that those nuclear weapons are not used. And, and especially in this situation, because uh, we all know that Putin has activated his, put his nuclear uh, arsenal on alert. So uh, some people are, are believe that the United States should be involved militarily, as well as its industrial military conflict, uh, making uh, billions of dollars now, providing weapons to Ukraine. So Ukraine can respond in a military fashion in the, the disaster that is now the Ukraine-Russian war. So what we should be concerned about now, some people saying, well, we should send in the U.S. military in, in, in Ukraine. I think that would be a disaster. I think a no-fly zone would also be a disaster because that, that means that we're going to have to use missiles to shoot down Russian planes, and, and that would directly involve the United States. And the United States in this conflict now could spread not just to Ukraine, but NATO alliances as well. And I think that would just end up in a greater disaster than much greater than the one we're already seeing between Russia and Ukraine. And I think the only way to resolve this conflict is through negotiations and both sides willing to give in on some of the critical issues that are now facing the Russian geopolitical country. So you can't send the, the, the FBI, the CIA, or, or Interpol in, in a rush and, and arrest Putin. That's not going to happen. And he's got a lot of support as evidenced by the fact that his, his poll numbers have gone up. So uh, I don't see any pathway to ending this war except through negotiations. So that, that's my perspective here. What do you think, David? Well, I was under the impression that Ukraine post-Chernobyl, post-Soviet Union was a nuclear power. They had nuclear arms, and then they willingly gave up those nuclear arms with security agreements from the West, from the United States, from, I don't know if the European Union existed at that point, but, uh, you know, from Central and, and Western Europe in the Anglo-American sphere that, okay, we're going to give up nukes. We're not going to be part of the nuclear game anymore for safety reasons, for political reasons, for military military reasons. However, will you will guarantee our security in an, as a non-nuclear power against a nuclear-armed Russia? And as we can clearly see, uh, Ukraine lived up to their end of the deal right now, and they're questioning whether or not the rest of the world's living up to their end of the deal, or at least the West. 
you know, President Zelensky made a comment last week at saying, you know, Ukrainians are having a hard time believing the rest of the world because every promise that they make, they don't live up to. And, and we're the ones that pay the price for us. Uh, I'm going to take a really, really long look at things that are going on right now and look at some of the core issues that Jim and K.A. and, and Doug have, have brought up. And we've talked about not just on the show, but the last some of the, the meetings leading up to this. Uh, we, we've talked about the Monroe Doctrine. We, we've talked about self-interest. If, if you look at history, the, I think the issue that we've got going on right now, and I don't have a solution for this, go back to the 1600s. Uh, the Protestant Reformation rages across Europe uh, in, in, in the 1500s. Starts in 1517, rages across Europe. Uh, particularly rages across what used to be known as the Holy Roman Empire. You have entire, you know, what was once a unified unified realm is broken up into all these many states of all these princes. Some decide to go Protestant, some decide to go Catholic. You know, literally dukes and feudal lords in each valley are choosing what religious side they're on and they're sending their armies to wipe out uh, all the people who don't agree with them and all the neighboring realms. Uh, this That was called the Thirty Years' War. The end of the Thirty Years' War, 1648, they come up with what's known as the Peace of Westphalia. If anybody goes back and reads deeply into history, go back and study that, even looking it up on his Wikipedia page. That set up what is now known as the concept of nation-state, uh, which is still the fundamental uh, unit of international relations and includes the Ukraine, the United States and Russia, Britain and Germany, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole idea behind this was is that every, you know, peoples would be would be broken into these uh, these self-contained units. They were self-governing. They, for the most part, had a similar national identity, similar languages, a predominant religion, um, and that that would, in Europe's mind at the time, in 1648 would keep violence to a minimum, uh, you know, that, they, that everyone had the right to uh, self-determination, that, they, that there was non-interference, the idea that, you know, uh, uh, France couldn't um, interfere in Germany simply because they didn't like the way that Germany was going about their business. They could only respond to threats. It tried to make the world less offensive and more defensive and looking inward. Uh, we know now in 2021, looking back over the last three or 400 years, the nation-state system, uh, and again, I don't have a solution to it at this point, has set up the world for some of the most violent, craziest wars ever, uh, and, and the peak of which was World War II. A vast majority of these very, very violent wars occurred in continental Europe, where that system was created to manage the violence. The France and Germany and Russia in World War II was a battle between nation-states. And in, particularly when they start forming all these different alliances with each other, entangle, in, entangling themselves. With the, with the coming of nuclear weapons after World War II, you know, now you have the rise of the superpowers. So you have China, basically China, Russia, and the United States, and they're these big nuclear powers, and they come up with what was known as the doctrine of uh, mutually, assured self, mutually assured destruction. The idea that if, if Russia launches their nukes at the United States or vice versa, both will be completely physically annihilated off the face of the earth. You know, who cares about what the consequences for the rest of the earth are? But, you know, now it's that, okay, nation states causing all these problems, so nuclear weapons will keep this down to a minimum. What that has done is, is now that all the, what was in the past, I'm not going to say routine, I'm not going to say normal, but just like the pandemic, some of the tragedies of human existence, conflict, you know, what was, was meted out between nation states of equal equal power status, now under the su nuclear superpower model, all that violence gets exported out to all these border states and these client states. Okay, look at the American history. Korea, then was Vietnam, then we had Beirut, then we had Afghanistan, then we had Iraq, and, and now that, 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 that locus of power has moved towards the Ukraine where we're fighting all these proxy wars. So I, I just wanted to get that off my chest. Let, let me let, let, thank you, you all, and thank the listener for the patience as I went through that. However, I, I, I don't know. I think that the existence of nuclear and look, look, look at how Putin has been flexing, rattling his nuclear saber just in the last couple of days. You know, firing off nuclear weapons, reminding the world that okay, you know, not only am I able to do this with impunity in Ukraine, at best we're going to fight a proxy war against Europe and the United States here in Ukraine now. 
Uh, oh, by the way, I can I can destroy superpowers as 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 good as anybody else. So it, we're seeing. I, I think what we see every night is is the nation state system moving into its apocalyptic status that it, that it's very very capable of moving into. Um, you know, whether it's a United Nations system, I, I and nationalism rises from this out of nation state and exceptional, you know, national exceptionalism to include American exceptionalism, the complete dehumanization of all your enemies, every other nation but yours. However, I don't have a solution to it. Uh, but thank you for letting me let me say that. Thanks. That's an interesting thread of thought. Ka, do you have any final thoughts or any final comments? One, I've enjoyed discussing issues with you fellas. I think it'll be very informative for our audience, our listening audience. Uh, you know, vast historical knowledge shared. I think that's a wonderful thing. I, I think about uh, the issue of nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, I want to thank David for pointing out that, yes, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for guarantees, and uh, look what's happening to it. So there uh, definitely been a failure there probably starting with the Donbass and then with the uh, Donbasses of the eastern region where, you know, Putin has been sending mercenaries for some time and then Crimea. So it's unfortunately is somewhat similar to the beginning of, of, of World War II, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, nuclear weapons, uh, I, I just don't have an effective response to, to that. Uh, uh, I really don't. Uh, whether or not they're preventing, I mean, uh, well, uh, I don't want to say they've kept the United States uh, from going face to face with uh, China because the United States went face to face with China in the Korean War because they were Korean troops. I mean, Chinese troops fighting American troops in the Korean War. So uh, and allegedly there were Chinese pilots flying against American air forces in, uh, in Korea in the Korean War. And, perhaps even Russian pilots then. So, so no, I don't have a good answer for that one, Doug. I really don't. I'm sorry. Any final comments from you, Jim? Yeah, thanks. Kay, you mentioned American exceptionalism here, and I think American exceptionalism has its fingers, fingerprints all over this Russian-Ukrainian situation. Andrew Preston's sort of spirit shield of faith his book points out that American exceptionalism was, was built, constructed on religious mythology and history that does not exist. That America, as the United States, has not demonstrated that it's an exceptional country in terms of uh, uh, representative democracy, morality, ethics. 264 years of slavery, 100 years of, of Jim Crow, 400 years of institutionalized racism certainly doesn't go bode well for us at the United States as an exceptional country. So that, but American exceptionalism is often the major uh, justification for war waged by the U.S. military. And I believe that's what's going on here now as evidenced by the fact that uh, uh, our, neither the mainland news nor President Joe Biden has at any time recently mentioned the grievances expressed by Putin and the Russian political leadership. Those grievances have all all but disappeared. No one's talking about those issues now. So then the fact that the mainline news has not mentioned them is also evidence that American exceptionalism is here. We're looking at this through a Manichaean perspective here, as if uh, the United States is always right and its enemy is always wrong. We have villainized Putin much the same way we, we have done in other conflicts that read, led to military uh, conflicts without mentioning the grievances uh, of the enemy. But I can tell you from my own experience as a historian, 30 years from now, when the historians come back and look at this situation, they're going to explain those grievances and they're going to uh, explain that those grievances expressed by Putin and Russians were reasonable uh, and should have been negotiated with in, in fair negotiations. I think it is a credit to WFMP for radio that we have aired shows of Chris Hedges, the Ralph Nader Hour, uh, Law and Disorder, 
that have all expressed and explained the history that led up to this conflict as well as the grievances that have been expressed by the Russian political leadership. So that's that's my final comment. Thank you. Just a footnote. I never used the words American and exceptionalism in this broadcast. But thank Jim, you did a great job, though. That, that, that was me, Jim. That was me, Jim. Oh, David. Sorry. Thank you. I think the food for thought, this is the first war in history. We've had celebrities intervene in conflicts with places like North Korea. We had Dennis Rodman as an unofficial and sort of uh, awkward, wild, weird liaison to North Korea. Uh, but having Elon Musk directly intervene in communications in Ukraine is the first time that a billionaire has stepped in. We have billionaires that use their money to try and solve problems in Africa. That's the big continent we didn't mention, but part of that is because much of the world is a colony still to the colonial empires that were started centuries ago and still are uh, either as proxy places for war or as basically raw materials for highly industrialized societies and power economy. So there's a lot of power to speak truth to, um, and it's important to, to name all those nuances. And I appreciated the fact that we, we don't think the United States is perfect and good in all that it does. And I think it's wise for us to be able to step back and ask, uh, which I think Jim did really well. If the rest of the world operated the way the United States did, um, would we be okay with that? Uh, and K.A. brought that up. David Campbell brought that up as well. So I think that's, that's the, the food for thought in the future. Thanks for joining in with us today. Uh, again, we had Jim Johnson, K.A. Owens, David Campbell, and I'm Doug Lowry. Thanks for joining us. Folks, we're out of time. You've been listening to Forward Radio's Truth to Power. Truth to Power airs on WFMP 106.5 FM radio every Sunday at 4 p.m., every Friday at 9 p.m., and every Saturday at 11 a.m. You can listen live stream if you visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Listen Live Now. The Truth to Power program featuring David Campbell, Kay Owens, and Doug Lowry as moderator will be placed in our archives May 7th. To listen via our archives, visit our website, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Truth to Power program that features Doug Lowry, Dave Campbell, and Kay Owens. For WFMP Radio, I'm Jim Johnson. Thanks for listening.